0: And you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. For those of you who've never tuned into Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information study.
1: We're a group of Masters in Library and Information Study students here at the University of Alberta, and every month we bring you fresh, sexy, library and information study centric news.
0: Belinda! Did you just say sexy?
1: That's right, Julia. We aren't just novel lovers, we're also Novel lovers.
0: But Belinda, I thought that the sexy librarian trope was harmful to our professional identity.
1: Not today. Today we're talking banned books, Madonna, sex work activism, and all the naughty things you can do I mean, find in the
0: stacks. Wow, it's about to get consensually hot in here. And I consent. Me too.
2: For this episode centered on banned books slash sex in the library, my mind went immediately to Madonna's infamous coffee table photography book, Sex, released on 21st of October 1992 by Warner Books, alongside her fifth studio album, Erotica, amidst a firestorm of media coverage and controversy. For this piece, I had intended to explore contemporaneous library responses to the book's publication, but I soon realized that this would likely require thesis-level exhaustiveness to account for queer theoretical concerns, theories of celebrity slash iconicity, book historical nuances, in addition to intellectual freedom and social responsibility issues more familiar to LIS, etc., as opposed to uh, this short segment that I'm doing here. What follows are a few of my thoughts arising from deep meditation on the world of Madge's sex and libraries. While doing this, I've also been listening to Erotica, and I just wanted to say that Rain, recently featured in a pivotal scene in the Safdie brothers' film, Uncut Gems, is a certified banger. Manav Ratti's, The Icon in the Text, American Book History and the Construction of the World's Largest Grossing Illustrated Book, Madonna's Sex, recently published in volume 54 of the Journal of American Studies, provides some astounding publication and sales figures about the title. I'm just gonna quote at length from it here because I find it all pretty stunning. Quote, Sex was the biggest international launch of a book ever. Some 750,000 copies went on sale simultaneously in France, Germany, Great Britain, Japan, and the US. It's also the world's largest grossing illustrated book, with 1.4 million copies sold worldwide in six months through eight printings and five language editions, English, French, German, Japanese, and Spanish. With a list price of US $50 upon release, the book generated total world sales figures of approximately US $70 million. About 1 million copies were sold in the US, with the remaining 400,000 sold throughout the world. The US copies sold out by the end of 1992 in one printing. Nearly all of the English and other language editions sold out immediately. Now classified as a rare book, Sex is among the most actively traded rare books online, with mint copies of the book in its original sealed Mylar envelope Attracting as much as a thousand dollars, according to BookFinder, sex has been the most requested out-of-print book in nearly every year since 2003, the year of BookFinder's earliest annual report. End quote. In addition, Sylvia Turchin's "Living the First Amendment," Gordon Connable, Madonna's sex, and the Monroe County Library, from Volume One, Number Four, 2017 of the Journal of Intellectual Freedom and Privacy, the only sustained analysis of the book and libraries. Admittedly, in an American public library context, but still very much worth reading for a close case study analysis of a specific library system's handling of the book's controversy, notes, quote, From 1992 to 1993, the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom collected data on 27 cases surrounding libraries and sex. In 1991, the year preceding sex's publication, the OIF, tallied 508 challenges. In 1992 and 1993, at the height of the sex, sex controversies, controversy the reported cases increased to 641 and 686, respectively." As can hopefully be grasped from these figures, the sheer enormity of sex as a cultural event, the demand it generated, essentially irrespective of any high, low cultural, or moral questions, which are what comprised many reviews, could have been, and was, used to justify its acquisition by library systems. At the same time, some library systems used its bestseller status as a reason to not acquire it and to, therefore, conveniently dodge controversy. To me, this suggests the fundamental malleability of collections development policies. Policies, rather than being edicts written in stone, are human-created, values-laden technologies that reflect the ideologies of the institutions they serve. The University of Alberta's Bruce Peel Special Collections has a copy of Sex cataloged and therefore removed from its aforementioned signature Mylar wrapper, which I went to read while working on this piece. Jeff Papineau, library assistant at Bruce Peel, alerted me to the fact of its amusing Library of Congress classification.
3: Literature on music, history and criticism, Biography, Individual, Madonna, Performers, Singers.
2: Which sits somewhat incongruously with its Library of Congress subject headings.
3: Madonna, 1958, Pictorial Works, Photography, comma Erotic.
2: Interestingly, as Susie Bright notes in A Pornographic Girl from the edited Madonna-rama, Essays on Sex and Popular Culture, in order to finance the project, Warner stipulated that Madonna was to refrain from including, quote, pictures with penetration, explicit genitalia, sex with animals, and sex with children. I reflected on these terms as I sat in the unavoidably staid institutional setting of the Peel Reading Room, paging through the volume's 132 unnumbered pages that largely feature Madonna and others, including Vanilla Ice, partially clothed or nude, engaged in scenes, representing masturbation, oral sex, homosexuality, cross-dressing, bondage, S&M, and urination. To members of the queer community in 1992 and now, sex may have not gone far enough and even smacked of appropriation, a charge frequently brought against Madge throughout her career for the way that she engages with identities lifestyles, signifiers, etc., according to a highly postmodern, pastiched sensibility. Conversely, as detailed in Turchin's above-mentioned article, sex could also somehow be incendiary enough for concerned citizens in Michigan to threaten the lives of Monroe County Library Director Gordon Conable and his family for defending the library system's acquisition of the book. I'll end this piece on this dissonance from amongst a set of potential dissonances, which I don't expect or need to resolve, even now, nearly 28 years after the publication of Madonna's charged volume under the guise of Mistress Dita. To quote Dita, I'll be your mistress tonight. I'd like to put you in a trance. Thanks. This was Joel for Shout for Libraries.
1: I feel like I've been touched for the very first time. Mm, yeah, very in vogue. That was great, but let's not get hung up. Mm-hmm. We got to keep moving here.
0: It's true, and now it's time for you to express yourself, Belinda.
1: I had a chance to sit down with one of the organizers of Future Librarians for Intellectual Freedom and chat about everything from LGBTQ books to porn in the library. Hello, listeners. I'm Belinda, and I'm here with Anne Elefante, and we're going to talk a little bit about her involvement in Fliff and then we'll continue talking about the topic of censorship. I will not call
4: penguins sexy in this interview. (laughs) It's really weird. So I don't want this to be tied to my name. (laughs) For the record, the
1: penguins were (laughs) co-parenting. So Anne, to get
4: us started, can you tell us what Fliff is and what you represent? Sure. So Fliff stands for Future Librarians for Intellectual Freedom. We are a student group at the U of A, and we are kind of the student group at the library school who are involved with a bunch of social uh, activism in regards to intellectual freedom. We Volunteer at the Homeless Connect and we give out books for free to people experiencing homelessness because we want to ensure that They also have their access to information just like everyone else And we also work with the mustard seed to run a revolving library for the people who uh, who go there So that's the kind of social activism that we do And we also have a lot of displays throughout the year to raise awareness for intellectual freedom issues kind of like the uh, the freedom to read week table that we just did uh, last week what we did was set up a table in the Rutherford Library and put on display a bunch of books that have been challenged or banned in Canadian libraries. And then I just kind of raised awareness about Freedom to Read Week. So we actually had great participation. Uh, When I was there, I had a lot of conversations with students passing by who were kind of surprised about books that were being challenged and lots of people that were just seeing the books that we had put on display and getting really tempted by them. And what kind of books did you have on display? Tell us about your sexiest reads. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, a lot of our books were children's books because um, I believe children's books are actually the most challenged materials. And so we had a lot of those on our table. I also tried to put on a bunch of graphic novels because, You know, they're graphic and can be scandalous. And they're really fun to flip through. So some of the specific books that we had at our table were uh, Three Incestuous Sisters by Audrey Niffenegger, who is actually also the author of The Time Traveler's Wife. Um, Spoiler alert, this graphic novel does not have incest in it, just so you know. (laughs) I know, I know. But... um, it was. It's a big book and it caught a lot of people's eyes, especially with such a title as the Three Incestuous Sisters, okay. right? So a lot of people would come over and flip through that one. It was banned for graphic depictions of sex, although I thought it was pretty artsy and tasteful. Um, we also had books such as, uh, we had, I think, some Stephen King on there. Uh, lots of children's books, because children's books tend to be the most challenged when it comes to uh, challenge and banned materials. Oh, man. Oh, we had Harry Potter and the Philosopher's no Stone on there. Because a lot of people are super surprised by that because they're like, oh, I read that growing up. Why is it so bad? It's the witchcraft. Though. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's the witchcraft and wizardry of Hogwarts school. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, a lot of people were uh, were really drawn by those And for our listeners, where can you find lists of banned books or challenged books? Right. So uh, there is the Freedom to Read Week website has a list of books that are frequently challenged or have been banned uh, in libraries in Canada. Um, For anyone who is in Edmonton, uh, the Edmonton Public Library does publish um, a list of their books that have been challenged. Actually, I think a lot of libraries do do that. And then there's the U.S. equivalent, which is Banned Books Week, you've probably heard of it. And Banned Books Week has their own website where they uh, have lists for American libraries. Awesome. That's great.
1: Moving right along, we're going to talk a little bit about the mother of Banned Books Week. So Anne, would you like to give us a little introduction to the one and only Judith Krug?
4: I have a whole essay. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. I did a research paper on Judith Crook because I thought that she was really amazing. So I have done a bit of research on this extraordinary lady. Like she's not some ancient figure of old, you know. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she recently passed away in 2009. She is the founder of Banned Books Week. And she was a president for the Freedom to Read Foundation. So she was an American librarian. Mm-hmm. But her work with Banned Books Week was just so revolutionary because it was such a popular movement. It still is such a popular movement. And it really brought to the forefront um, the library's role when it comes to combating censorship. And people were associating libraries with intellectual freedom, which is inherently what libraries... um, like, it's such a core principle for libraries, but then at the same time, it's not the first thing the public thinks about, right? Mm-hmm. So it's nice that this event, Ban Books Week, uh, just strengthens that con- that connection. And so Judith really did some amazing work for that, and she was part of the uh, Intellectual Freedom Foundation for the American Library Association. Uh, just all of her life seems to just have been dedicated to intellectual freedom. So one of the things that Judith did in her life was oppose the Children's Internet Protection Act. So that's CIPA, And SIPA was this act that was enacted in 2000. And basically what it meant was that Uh, Children would have to have a filter when they were uh, browsing the Internet, especially in libraries. And so that meant that our children would not have access to all of the same information as the rest of us. And Judith was very much against this. Judith did not believe in filtering the Internet at all. She saw it as a place for everyone to access everything. And so she fought against that. And then what ended up happening was... At the library, children still had to have that filter when they were using the internet, but parents could give permission to have that filter deactivated. And so, with parent permission, children could have access to the internet as it is.
1: So, internet censorship is one area where censorship is coming to play beyond books. We also see this coming into play in the realm of
4: um, booking rental spaces and other online forums. When it comes to the historical part of internet censorship, it's really sad because the internet was introduced to the public as this place where anyone can create anything. It was a playground for people to create websites and create communities for uh, for communities that couldn't really gather in person. The internet is no longer that playground that we had thought it was, because now you've got things like algorithms and bots and just all these technologies that are working to privilege uh, the normative standard, and they're oppressing Voices like LGBTQ+, plus and uh, just minority communities. Another issue that has come up is
1: viewing of pornography in the library setting and the access to pornography.
4: Ah, uh, yes. Porn. <laughs> hmm. I think my theory is that the, uh, the ALA, the American Library Association, does not have a lot of policy regarding porn in libraries because once you set a stance on something like porn or sexual content, they have to really draw a line. And then when you get books that are being challenged for their sexual content, how do you differentiate that from porn? the behavior tied to that is what really matters. It's like, is the person who is viewing porn actually disrupting everyone else.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Here's my hot take, though. Why does it matter what someone else is looking at? <laughs> 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 That's my only thing. I guess it's different once you get children involved because you have to protect the children, but, yeah, in general, I just just live and let live in that sense. Right, so, like, at what point...
1: Do we have to compromise our own sensitivity and our own susceptibility to being offended and just be tolerant? Like just accept that people have different views and different interests and that someone viewing a particular type of content or reading a particular type of book, we just can look away. And I think that's something that Judith was a huge advocate of. Is like, if you don't want to see it, don't look. It's really hard to have those strictly defined boundaries around what you can and can't view. So that's where we have these Um, values of intellectual freedom and and freedom to access materials because we can't really judge and we can't impose our own beliefs on someone else's viewing habits so I think that's where we'll wrap up and I just like to thank Anne
4: so much for chatting with me thanks so much for inviting me to do this it's been a pleasure and um Fliff is having another Homeless Connect event in the spring, and come visit us at one of our tables if you ever get a chance. Awesome. Thanks so much.
0: Wow, that reminds me. Did you know that Regina, the public library, is cool with porn in the library?
1: Ooh, road trip. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, it's not like we can get porn here or anything.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah I, I, mean, no, I, no. I mean, I wouldn't know. I mean, either. neither. Right. Right. Right.
0: If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Show for Libraries, and today we are talking about the sexy side of librarianship. Dan Hackborn and I had a really amazing chance to sit down with Dr. Daniel Allard this week to discuss an important project that she is part of, and I'm excited to share it with everybody. Cool, let's hear it. All right, hi everybody, I'm Julia Guy, and I'm here with Dan Hackburn and uh, Danielle Allard, who are interviewing about the Sex Work Database. So Danielle, first, can you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you and uh, what you do here at the university? Sure, thank you, Julia and Dan. Uh, My name is Danielle Allard.
3: I'm an assistant professor in the School of Library and Information Studies.
0: Awesome, so to start us off, Danielle, could you give us an introduction to the Sex Work Database project? And uh, yeah, just give us kind of an overview of what that's all about.
3: Yes, I will, thank (laughs) you. Uh, So I work on a project called the Sex Work Database and um, we call this project a digital community and activist archives. It's entirely digital and it is um, a community archive because uh, we work with um, members of the sex work activist and sex worker community to co-create and develop this archives. Um, and it's activist because it, it has an intention to do, to itself, do sex work activism, or at least to reflect the histories and the hard work and the um, um, exciting and um, important Uh, legacy and history of sex work activism in Canada. In terms of the collections um, on the sex work database, we have been harvesting and preserving the websites of sex work activist organizations with the recognition that a lot of sex work activism takes place on the web. We have collected news records about sex work activism and the ways that Canadian news media in Canada talks about sex work to um, look at and examine and reflect the, some of the terrible ways, for example, that um, news media talks about sex work. And then lastly, we have been uh, recently going to different sex work activist organizations across Canada. We've been going to their spaces, their, um, to their organizations to digitize the records of their... Um, activist history. In terms of who is part of the team, we work with a lot of different activist organizations but the core of the team um, includes myself and what I bring to the team is knowledge of library and archives practice and theory a little bit I suppose that both contribute to the project and also sometimes create problems for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we have um, Shauna Ferris. She is a women's and gender studies professor at the University of Manitoba. We have Amy Leibovich, who is a longtime sex work activist and has been intimately involved in and tied to the sex work activist community in Canada for a long time, including being an appellant on the Bedford v. Canada Charter Challenge. Um, and then lastly, we have Micheline Hughes, who's a PhD
0: student in Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. Could you maybe speak a little bit to the process that the team, including yourself, took to make this project happen, or initiate it, or what the process has been like?
3: Sure. So the project started with an intention to digitize or to harvest the websites of sex work activist organizations. And the purpose behind that was the acknowledgement by Shauna, who who originated the project, that um, these websites were one of the most important spaces where activism was taking place, for for sex workers and sex work activists who often live um, far apart from each other. Mm -hmm. And so she recognized that um, these were important spaces. I mean, sex workers and sex work activists also recognized that they were important spaces, but the project originated from this idea that um, these sites needed to be harvested and um, preserved. And part of the recognition of this comes from the fact that um, the sites were um, often being changed, right? And so people were coming in and out of sex work activism, and the sites were um, changing, and there was no record or um, preservation of these stories. So that was the sort of seed That began the project Mm -hmm. and um, because Amy and Shauna had been working together for a long time we realized that this wasn't an academic project this needed to be a community project and it really needed to be community-led so Amy joined the project to ensure um, and to um, hold Everyone accountable to um, community perspectives and, and also Amy is the, the bridge. Um, she's a, a longstanding and well-respected member of the sex work activist community and it is her um, relationships and her understanding of the community that really are at the heart of the project and make the project possible. And so um, in terms of the history of the project, so I've identified that it began as a web archiving project, but that it has significantly expanded since it began. Um, One of the first things that we did was to travel um, to a number of sex work activist organizations across Canada and to consult with groups. So there's a really rich and long-standing history of sex work activism in Canada and there are groups, most of them are unfunded but many of them have been around for a really long time and they have a rich set of records and a whole bunch of knowledge. So we went to these places um, and we talked to these folks with an eye towards setting some priorities um, and soliciting interest and, um, and making sure that this is a project that people wanted to do and um, it was. Um, so we began to have a kind of vision of what this project might look like. And so now round two of our project is to travel to these different activist organizations to digitize the records at the sites of these organizations, and that is um, super fun and exciting. I'm, really, I'm enjoying that part of the project.
0: Uh, I'm wondering, uh, you were mentioning there can be kind of tensions that come up with the archival background and this work. Could you speak a little bit to that?
3: Sure. Um, so I, I, I think there are some tensions that show up for researchers and then particularly for people who are doing um, archival or library and information studies kinds of projects. And so I'm only speaking about my, myself here and I r- really need to be clear about that because there, this project is extremely collaborative. So I speak only for myself, um, but I will say community work happens on a different timeline at a different pace um, and um, has different goals than academic work and so finding the right balance between those two things is a constant um, struggle and I will say um, I am certain that community members have been frustrated with us too because we are meeting academic deadlines um, and they might have wanted things to move differently Um, so there's a kind of a give and take that needs to happen on both sides and that the That the timelines and the priorities and the um, obligations don't easily map up. Um, But more specifically to archives and um, library science, I think particularly um, those of us who work in libraries, we are always told that providing access to materials is like the most important And I think um, in this context, access is like relatively important, but I would suggest that um, the right to be forgotten is always more important than the need to be remembered in the context of this project. And so we need to always work closely with community members to identify how access should be provided to particular records, what doesn't or shouldn't be included, Um, and to remember always that that decision is um, completely community-led, which really stands outside of the kind of quick and efficient way that librarians and archivists like to work to make sure that everybody has access to everything.
5: So I was wondering, given that the vision of this project has developed, what is the intended use of the final database?
3: So this database is always intended first for sex work activists and for sex workers. Recognizing that um, records and stories can be fundamental to the telling and shaping of history, recognizing that records matter, our goal is always to um, use these records to tell the stories that sex work activists and sex workers want to tell.
0: Thank you so much to Daniel Allard. That was great. Perfect. Very cool. My pleasure. (laughs) So what's next here, Belinda?
1: Well, Dan is back with our beloved segment, It Came From the Stacks. Wow,
0: you know, you really don't know what you're going to see walking around the stacks. Things you can't unsee. Well, let's find out what Dan saw in the stacks, shall we?
5: Retired Staff Sergeant Al Lund was donated to the University of Alberta in 2008 and is one of two historically significant RCMP donations housed in the Bruce Peel Special Collection. Relevant to our topic this week, lurid stories about sexy Mounties form a significant part of the Lund Collection. While it may be hard to picture from the present, at one time the Red Surge was as powerful a symbol of the white masculine mastery of the exotic as Indiana Jones or James Bond. Some historical context. In 1896, publisher Frank Munsey revamped Argosy magazine, printing it on the cheapest untrimmed paper stock, aka pulp, using the steam-powered printing press. Though the components had already long existed, up to this point, no one had combined cheap printing, cheap paper, and underpaid authors in a single package. And this was a revolution in the provision of cheap and disposable entertainment to the masses. The effect was immediate, its success ensuring that the technique was widely copied and popular magazines went from circulations of thousands per month to millions for the most popular, peaking between the 20s and the 40s. The cheap pulp that enabled this revolution was made possible by chemistry advances, but just as importantly, the abundance of material created as a booming settler population rapidly deforested the North American continent. This colonial extractive logic was integral to what would become the Canadian state, present from the beginning, a linear extrapolation being drawn from the fur trade to the oil and gas industry. One institution in particular was created to preserve the infrastructure of extraction. So the content of these pulp magazines should be familiar to anyone who's consumed English-language popular entertainment from Shakespeare to Game of Thrones. Danger, sex, violence, and fantastical locales, ideally mixed together. Magazines like Thrilling Wonder Stories, oriental stories and my personal favorite spicy detective gained huge readerships perhaps you can see why the rcmp were so popular in the late 18th and early 19th century the frontier mythology was dominant The idea that the white men could come with guns and grit and subdue other nations and nature itself. Indeed, had the right to do so was necessary as motivation and justification for the extreme labor and violence that would have to be deployed to create capital and profit where none had existed. Canada's first prime minister created the organization that would become the RCMP after the purchase of the Northwestern Territory from the Hudson's Bay Company for the purpose of maintaining law and order in the new region. What this looked like in practice, historian John Jennings has described as a legal tyranny And while history is too complex to reduce into easily digestible narratives, some of the major operations during this early history involved relocating indigenous peoples and breaking strikes during the construction of the railway, the attempt to combat the Northwest Rebellion, and the targeting of ethnic communities such as the Chinese diaspora that were considered dangerous to Canada. For whatever reason, perhaps some kind of subconscious recognition of insecurity combined with a culture of misogyny, a certain sexuality has been attached to the frontier mythology from the beginning, exemplified by narratives that present civilized white men symbolizing an apex of progress with the fetishization of non-white peoples who are viewed as primitive and therefore closer to nature hopefully you can hear the air quotes in my voice these themes tie in quite nicely with the tendencies of popular content To return to the pulps, Argosy, the alpha pulp itself, would include stories such as The Arctic Patrol and 60 Degrees Above and Below. In 1935, three years before he'd write the unpublished manuscript that would form the basis of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard published Yukon Madness in the August issue of Mystery Adventures, which involved an RCMP officer pursuing an Inuit villain who feeds people to his sled wolf team and an Inuit love interest named Kaya who will be forced to marry this cartoonish villain. The Lund collection includes Stories with titles like The Wolf Woman of Chandindu, The Dancing Wolf and A Daughter of the Snows. These tropes were popular enough that, in 1937, Northwest Romances was established as its own title. Each cover almost invariably shows a stoic Mountie grasping a buxom woman, who is oftentimes depicted using the signifiers that Western culture represents indigeneity with, impractical short buckskin cocktail dresses, fringed in tassels, beads, or fur, long dark hair, an ethnically ambiguous face, though recognizably exotic. For extra points, the cover might also include a menacing dark-skinned threat. fictions continue right through to the end of the pulps and into their 21st century descendants with a Harlequin romance knockoff present in the collection called The Second Vow by Catherine Fox, published in 2001, the love interest being a fictional niece of Sitting Bull named Dancing Bird. The symbol of the Mountie has shifted over the years, at times being taken completely seriously as exemplified by these pulps and as a bit of a cartoon joke like Dudley do both stereotypes disguise a subtler, sinister history from the systematic murder of Inuit dogs, the ongoing use of excessive force, to false flag operations such as dynamite theft and staging an oil site bombing in 1999, to their own culture of sexually harassing and assaulting not only the women in the communities they were supposed to protect, as established by the Human Rights Watch report in 2013, but their own staff and officers, brought to light by the recent Merlo-Davidson and Tiller class action lawsuit and their subsequent settlements. This document Documented history is particularly chilling given the mythology and logics presented as aspirational within the pulp fiction. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are important and powerful. As documented in the exhibition Sam Steele's 40 Years in Canada, History or Fiction, the subject of the Bruce Peel's other RCMP collection, essentially wrote himself as the Forrest Gump of Canada's first four decades of official existence, stealing and fictionalizing the accounts of his peers, codifying many of the tropes that would become the early mythology of the RCMP. As funny as it may be now, the Sexy Mountie is a fascinating fractal example of Canada itself, a self-similar pattern across different scales. Scales, the macro represented in the micro.
0: That was spicy, Dan. Ah, what a spicy time we have had here. Well, tune in next month. <laughs> <laughs> Well tune in next month to Librarians Gone Wild I, I mean sh- Shout for Libraries And
1: visit our Facebook page or Instagram At Shout for Libraries or connect with us On Twitter at Shout the number Four Libraries Also
0: check out past episodes On Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify You can also find an extended version Of this month's
1: episodes This has been Belinda Ongaro
0: And Julia Guy
1: Don't forget to check Swipe out. right I mean check it out I said check it out